Good morning, Orchard. Uh, my name is Evelyn Stringer, and I'll be reading God's Word today. Um, today's passage is from 2 Corinthians chapter 18, verses 16 through 24. Here's the reading of God's Word. But thanks, but thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the most the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For, he, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for, our, for your benefit. And as for your, I'm sorry, and as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is God's word. Thank you, Evelyn. Good morning, co-heirs. Last week we took sort of a break, <clears throat> sort of. We went back and explored what godly grief might look like. This week we're back on track <clears throat> where DK left off two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> and I think in this section, at face value, you know, there are some texts you read through and you're like, man, I could preach that real easy. This is not one of those. But it's not because the text is insufficient. It's because of the messenger. But the, the direction I'm coming from is, I think, at face value, Paul is just reporting what's going on. Hey, the generous gift is going off. We're sending a few guys. You know Titus. <clears throat> but I think it's also a reflection of what we've been talking about in our series. The idea that we have a confessional spiritual life and then a functional spiritual life, right? It's easy to think um, these things are just Jesus theory, but talk to me about spiritual realities in the middle of the week when my boss is on my case about something. That's very difficult to, to figure out and to integrate new creation identity at the workplace, right? Because at work, nothing seems spiritual on its face. <laughs> But I think often we mistake spirituality for, I don't know, someone meditating in the middle of the field, surrounded by butterflies and rainbows, encompassed in a cone of light. But that's not what it looks like. What it looks like is just everyday stuff, nothing special, right? It's not someone locked up in their private study, books everywhere, giant leather chair that creaks at every little twitch of your body. No. If you recall, Paul, in some of his letters, he has this habit of breaking up his letters into kind of like two halves. Second Corinthians is not quite that way, but for example, 
Ephesians or Romans, what he starts with is what God has done. Here is the gospel, right? And then after that, he says, okay, now having made my case, this is how you live. The shorter way to say that is we would say, like, you know, here are the indicatives, who we are in Christ as a new creation. Here are the imperatives. Here is how you ought to live your new creation self. And then more specifically, uh, last time DK preached, it was this reflection of generosity. Why are they sending this gift? Because they're nice people? No. They're sending this gift because as new creation they've reflected on the generosity that God has shown them. And so as they look in their lives and say, and ask themselves the question, how then should I live? Well, I ought to be generous as God has been generous to me. And this is one of the ways, right? <clears throat> so we're going to look at that this morning in this text. How can we practically look at what God has done for us in Christ, that he has made us a new creation, and how we live that out in kind of specific niches of life? So first... First point is the practical man. I'm going to first spend the first point talking mostly to the men in the room. <clears throat> but it's still relevant for everybody, even if you're not a man. <clears throat> I've, been a, I've been a man for a little bit, <laughs> but I'm not pointing to my experiences. I'm pointing to the scriptures. Because I can truthfully say that I've not always been a good one. And it's not because I'm trying to present a false sense of humility or that I often partake in self-deprecating humor, but there's an objective standard by which to measure manhood, right? And even the world has this confused because they don't know what a man is anymore or a woman. But for believers, it's not enough just to know the difference. Well, this is a man, this is a woman. Look at the chromosomes, whatever your argument might be. That's not enough. That's not enough. You can be as conservative as possible. It's still not enough. Okay? So pay attention, not because I am a great man. Pay attention because God has designed it so that men have a significant place in the home and in the church. So pay attention especially if you have a home or will have one or are part of a church because God has something to say to you. And for men, it is to embrace the identity God has given and to reject the world's attempts to undo who you are in Christ. So, for example, where's the church's voice in the culture? How is the culture so confused about everything? Well, part of that is our failure to embrace and execute the mission we've been given as men. <clears throat> if you are not a man, if you are a woman, uh, application will, we'll make application at the end of this, at this point for you, okay? All right. So what do, what do we see about the practical man in this passage? First, these guys have been tested. And with them, we are sending our brother who, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. Right. Verse 22. What does it mean to be tested? <clears throat> this is what the, the Greek word means. It is to draw a conclusion about worth on the basis of testing, to approve or to prove, or to consider qualified. This method is often used, for example, to test the purity of metals. In this case, they are not testing the man's metal. They're testing his genuineness of faith. We see this used in other portions of Scripture. I'll just point to how Paul uses it to the Corinthians. This is in his first letter to the Corinthians. 
in chapter 3, he writes, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So if you recall, the context for that verse is that the believers there in Corinth have been following their favorite leader, right? Why? Because they've been using worldly standards by which to measure church leaders and not God's standards. And so Paul here is describing believers as a building and makes the case that true measure is how one has built on the foundation that has already been laid in Christ. That there is a purity of motivations that is taking into account. And that is what Paul is talking about. That is what is, will be tested. Okay? Not how well do they speak. How worldly are they? That is not the question to ask about church leaders. A second portion, or a second, second example of what it means to be tested is one we are familiar with because we use it almost every week. That is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. So if you were listening to what Jimmy said this morning, you did the testing of yourself. This is how one approaches the communion table, understanding that an act of being remembered is not a self-centered proposition, but remembering what God has done for us in Christ, and that there is judgment for the unfaithful in the form of punishment that Christ took in our place. So as you think of communion and examine yourself, you think of Christ and you think, that should be me. And that's your starting point for taking the bread and the cup. And we are not saying that these men were perfect by any means. The conclusion of the test was that they were found to be earnest. We're looking for what's genuine, a faith that's genuine. So what does it mean then to be earnest? Ernest has said a couple of times, right? For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. And then again, this guy that was tested was found earnest in many matters, and now more earnest than ever. So what does that word mean? Earnest commitment in discharge of an obligation or experience of a relationship. There's a zeal, a diligence. There you go. Extraordinary commitment to civic and religious responsibilities. Okay? That's what it means to be earnest. That idea is important because it points to the motivation of why they are going. Motivation relates to being earnest, as in you're earnest about what you treasure. And for these guys, it was a commitment and res responsibility to God first, then others. And the world will tell you that you can be earnest about a very many, lot, you know, a whole lot of things. That you should be extraordinarily committed to yourself, to your job, to your hobby, to money. And all these things will fulfill you as much as the abiding love of God. No, those are lies. But the truth is we have all fallen for it, Right? That when the Bible says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And we say, but wait, there should be space for me to boast about me, because I am pretty good. You see, godly men don't need to be coaxed into prioritizing spiritual realities. We don't need to beg them to see that there should be new creation priorities in every area of life. 
Because godly men are not self-motivated. You can't just make it up. Godliness is not a feeling that you think about and make real when you do stuff. They are less compelled by the world's lies because they are focused on the truth. This is the idea that if I seek his righteousness first and his kingdom first, everything else will be fine, even if it feels awful. It is the realization that if you gain the whole world but lose your soul, you've gained nothing. Godly men are a product of regular and consistent integration of spiritual priorities in all areas of life. And their godliness is a natural response to what God has done for them, that he has made them a new creation. So how earnest or genuine is your faith, men? And are you measuring against others or by the standard that God has set forth? Not by what you think you are or how you might imagine or feel that particular day, what God has said. And if we find out the truth, we should probably just ask your wife or your family, right? Or your coworkers, maybe. You see, if you find it hard and sort of clunky to be spiritual, it's probably because you're not focused on the truth, that you've bought into the world's lies, that there are more pressing things going on than God's cosmic plan, right? Like, what's more important today? Super Bowl? Communion? What have you been excited about all week? Super Bowl? Sermon. Super Bowl. Loving one another. <clears throat> Reputation of these men. Verse 18 and 19. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. All the churches... It makes me think, how did all the churches find these guys? Because it's not like you could look up their social media accounts. Right? It wasn't like that. There are so very many things that get tied up with our identity, and the world will tell you it's about your ability. What can you do? Or your stuff. How rich are you? Or your friends. Who do you associate with? Who's the most famous person you know? I came across this in my Bible reading this week, Exodus 33, 16, and it struck me. I'll share it with you. And he writes, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? And here it is. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people? from every other people on the face of the earth. Yet how easy is it to find a man in the church who thinks worldly success is the greatest mark of distinction? Look at my skill. Look at my wisdom. Look at my friends. Right? <clears throat> Let's schedule spiritual priorities when there's spare time. We'll move heaven and earth for things like travel ball, Super Bowl, the next episode of the show, I just need a day for me. When it comes to spiritual priorities, it's whatever's left over. <clears throat> These men were known for the preaching of the gospel. And that strikes me because aren't we in the habit of telling good news to people? I got promoted. We're going to have a baby. I just got engaged. 
I'm a wretch who's, who's been saved by, from, from my sin? How about that? And how do these compare when I realize that I'm utterly unlovable because of the sin in my own heart, yet God still made his own? Tell me what you easily talk about in your conversations, men. My skill, my stuff, my wisdom, or what God has done for you. And it makes me think of previous charges that Paul has levied against the Corinthians. Let me review for us. This is in his first letter. 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And then he goes on a few chapters later. He says, as he's closing the letter, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you have, let all that you do be done in love. So this is far from just know the difference between two genders. There are men and women. No. Because Paul in chapter 13 says, don't be like a child. You see, childish ways, if you have children, you know exactly what this is. Ch children are primarily concerned for themselves. They are focused on themselves and short-term gratification. And unfortunately, that is a lot of men that we rub elbows with. They're concerned about themselves and short-term gratification. Right? Like their spiritual gift is mine! Mine! Life, mine! Time, mine! Money, mine! Free time, mine. Toys, stuff, mine. Glory, mine. No, Paul says, do not be like that. That is for spiritual children. Conduct yourselves in a mature and courageous manner. You see, being childish was, not a, result of not, was a result of not being watchful, not being vigilant, not standing firm in your identity in Christ. They were spiritual wussies spiritually undeveloped because there was no consistent, perceptive, active, meaningful reflection on the new creation order brought about by the risen Christ. Is Jesus Lord? Well, if I have to answer, then yes, but otherwise, no. I just want to think what I think and do what I do. Can I put another boundary as we are thinking about what God has given for men to do? Men, it is a sin to be cowards. Don't take my word for it. Let me read the Bible to you. This is in the book of Revelation. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, you see, cowards are being grouped with murderers. Makes, make that make sense to me, men. I'm going to start over. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. <clears throat> Among this group of men that was being sent was Titus. <laughs> if you remember, Paul wrote a letter to him. Titus has a really good description of what a man should be. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And I know, I know, this is a list of qualification for elders or overseers, but why would you want any less out of a man? Why, why should we have a subsection of men that qualify for elders and then just another section for underdeveloped, childish, cowardly, spiritual wussies? Make that make sense to me. Who, who would not look at this list and be, that is desirable for any man? Can we just review here? Not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Is anyone like, no, 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 no. I want my man to be arrogant and quick-tempered. Not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. All those things are good, but hospitable, no good. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So the question is, does that only apply to some guys? Or is that a call for every man to be godly? Consider also why, why this list exists. Why those things and not other things? Why not athletic, handsome, bald? Why are those not on there? <laughs> oh, you laugh now. <laughs> why does this list exist? Well, the letter goes on. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That's why. Because theological garbage is still being slung to this day. And so who is supposed to stand up to it? The other guys. No, you. You are. <clears throat> it makes me think of my daughters. When they're of age... The men they bring home should be at least these things. That they should be consumed with the idea that they have this daunting responsibility to lead their homes well. Right? How? If the expectation is that the wife and the kids will treasure Christ rightly and live in faithfully appropriate response in all areas of life, then I, or he, must be obsessed with it in order to teach it, to model it, to point out nuances, nuances of beauty to the untrained eye. Abide in it when difficulties arise. To show them how to worship with full hearts. So men, men, what are the effects of being spiritually lazy? Or spiritual cowards? You may not think there's a big deal. Because, you know. Can we just do Bible math for a second? Like how many, let me ask the question in a different way, using Bible math. How many ineffective body parts would you find acceptable in a battle? Because if we're going to make room and say, well, we can have X number of useless men, right? And all of us are different parts of the body. That means in the spiritual battle, 
we're okay with going to war with just parts of the body. That doesn't make sense to me. Dads, our priorities will be reflected in our kids. If you don't model and teach these things, don't be surprised when your children are spiritual morons and they give up their lives for meaningless pursuits and they grow up to be theological infants. Husbands, it's not her fault. It's the stuff in your heart that keeps you from this. So how about you focus on the cross and see that as the standard you're held to and then you step off and love her from there. Wives, here's the application part. Wives, lovingly hold your husband to these standards. Letting him slip below the standard is not love, it is not nice, and it surely is not holy. You are not doing him or your household any favors, but when he messes up, you must show him grace. I wasn't going to say this. There's a story that pops into my mind, and this was told to one of my Bible professors from Biola, and he was saying, when he was young in his marriage, uh, he was a pastoring in like Chicago, driving through some frigid, frigid temperatures, and they were young, so their car was, the heater didn't work, they were like bundled up in the car, you know, just like freezing on the way. On the way, he's trying to memorize the passage that he's preaching from, and he he was getting a couple of words mixed up, like an and, but it's an it or something. So at a light, he gets angry, which is on that list, remember? At the light, he gets angry, and out of frustration, he's memorizing Bible verses, he hits the windshield. What does the windshield do? Yeah. And so in that moment, he is thinking, you know, wife is going to let me have it, right? So he turns just with, the fear of God in his heart, you know. What does she say? What does she say? How's your hand? That's what she says. Also, Marianne repeated the story to me once, and I was like, that's the one. That's the one. Anyway, show him grace when he does stupid things, because that's part of our spiritual gift. <laughs> Single ladies, meaning if you are not married, if he is not headed in this direction or interested in godliness, he is not worth batting an eye at. Maybe he's not that right now, which is fine, as long as there's a desire and a plan. In other words, if he has no plan for godliness and he has plans for food, job, whatever else, hobbies, you need to have a talk. <clears throat> Does this plan include participation in the life of a local church, because just going is not all right. I can tell you from experience, even useless soldiers show up to formation. But when it's time to shoot stuff, useless still. Is he surrounding himself with men to help him grow? Is he humble enough to admit, these are the areas where my faith is weak? Show me the receipts of him committing to spiritual priorities, and I'll, then, then we can have a conversation about whether, he's not worth, whether or not he is worth your time. But if he doesn't have any of those in place, he has a clear idea of where the good food is, where the entertainment is. He is not a man. He is a spiritual infant. He is just a spiritual mouth breather. Marriage is difficult enough. So find yourself an earnest man of God. How long until you give up your childish ways? How long? I want to hold on to it. Why? 
How's that helped you this far? How many useless church men are too many in the spiritual battle? How many theological morons is too many for the world? When will you turn from the lies of the world? You guys remember that story comparing <clears throat> the difference between those who built their house on the rock and those who built their house on the sand? What is the difference? You remember? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. Hearing them is not enough. Lastly, men, I'm not saying these things because I think less of you. I'm saying these things because the word of God convicts me. And I hope it convicts you too. If you are not convicted by the word of God in every area of your life, life will be very confusing for you and for those around you. So be the sort of man that God would approve of. Let God's standard be your standard let the new creation be your identity. Let the world's lies die from abandonment because you've embraced the truth of what God has made us to be. Practical man. Point two, practical church. <clears throat> In verse 20, he says, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered to us for we aim at what is honorable not only in the, in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So on its face, they are simply aiming for two things, to be blameless and honorable. And who is the audience for this blamelessness and honor? It is God and man. <clears throat> but there is also a spiritual component to this. This is what we've been exploring, a snapshot of spiritual realities that has come to physical life in the church. Let me read to you really quick, before we look at other examples. A passage in Romans, where Paul points this out. Romans 15. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. This is what we're reading about. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, I have delivered to them, and what has been collected I will leave for Spain by the way of you. Okay, so first, I have pictures. Here are some poor examples of how churches have done blamelessness and honor in the sight of God and man. Pictures. Here are just some headlines where the church has mismanaged money. Okay, so this is from... The Mercury News, February 5th, 2024. Bishop Staccato, Powell, and Sheila defraud Bay Area congregations by obtaining 14 million in loans and mortgaging the properties for personal expense. <laughs> what did he use the money for? Personal benefits, including adding land to his family farm in North Carolina, paying off $14,000 in mortgage debt on his home, Next example, NBC, December 14th, 2022. Florida pastor and his son were arrested on charges of fraudulently obtaining more than 8 
million in federal COVID relief funds and attempting to use some of the money to buy a luxury home near Walt Disney World. Uh, part of this report includes the man who was listed on the loan application as the ministry's accountant, who was at the time suffering from dementia and had not worked for the organization since 2017. Next one. Black Enterprise, January 30th, 2024. Eli, anyway, Eli, an online pastor, self-proclaimed prophet, Victorious Grace Church in Colorado. They exploited their ministry to defraud over 300 investors of 3.2 million through a cryptocurrency venture, IndexCoin. He was enticing investors with promises of abundance and blessings, but we don't have any more of those guys. Word of faith, guys. <clears throat> and who will stand up to them, by the way? All right. This is, he is quoted as saying, the Lord said, I want you to build this. We took God at his word and sold a cryptocurrency with no clear exit. That was part of his ministry pitch. See, part of the problem was that he thinks that God still gives private personal revelation. Um, so he peddled outlandish promises of wealth to them, and when he sold them, essentially worthless cryptocurrency. Last one. Here's the last one. Hillsong. But what could go wrong with Hillsong? March 9th, 2023. Brian Houston, who's the family, uh, the pastor's name. <clears throat> he jetted off with friends to Cancun, Mexico for a luxury retreat lasting three days. It cost the church $150,000. He also used private jet like they were Ubers. This is all with church money. Uh, one three month, for one three-month period, he took a trip, cost 55000 another 52000 another 30000 another 22000 another $20,000. In a three-month period on private jets. He also bought gifts for people. For example, a $6,500 Cartier watch for his own wife, 2500 in LV luggage, $2,500 watch for another dude. Here's the best part, $16,000 for custom skateboards. <clears throat> and so uh, after reading all these headlines, those churches over there mismanage money to the detriment of the witness of the gospel, sure, but there are real-life examples. Uh, like, I know one where people are involved in a church. The senior pastor constantly blows out the budget. He hires family members without consulting anybody. He directs designated, undesignated funds to support one missionary specifically because that missionary is his son. When he's confronted with these things, he gets angry and calls people liars. So all that being said, when considering these poor examples of how ministries have mishandled money, here's the question. What were they concerned with? Were they concerned with being blameless and honorable in the sight of God and man? What has it done to the gospel witness of the church in that area? Whose money did they think it was? How about the church members? How are they affected? How are they caring for the members at that time? 
Or when, Ephes- when Paul writes in Ephesians that, the church, that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, what kind of wisdom were they trying to display? Upon further reflection, it really makes me thankful for our situation, not that we're perfect, but we have a commitment to be transparent with our finances. Like if you come to the first meeting of the year, you see every line that we have budgeted for the year, and that there is not a senior pastor who wields ridiculous power, or however you want to call it, but we have a plurality of elders holding each to account, striving for blamelessness and honor in the sight of God and man. But really, this is another example of the indicative-imperative relationship, that there are physical displays of spiritual realities. So if you recall, for example, what DK preached a couple weeks ago, that as, you, as they meditate on how God has been generous to them, that they should turn around and be generous to others. And so they're trying to do this in a very real way, in the sense of sending this generous financial gift to the poor saints in Jerusalem, right? Let us just recall a couple of things here. For example, in John 13, when Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then the Bible goes on to say, for example, in 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Lastly, James 2, 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So, is it possible then that the spiritual thing to do isn't simply, I'll pray for you, or a text of this emoji? but actually caring for the physical needs. You see, we know this is true because love isn't just wishful feelings, but God, God didn't save us with wishful feelings or positive vibes or hugs. He sacrificed. So should your love have a record of sacrifices as God's does. Right? So spiritual realities come to physical reality. Love being made known in the... <laughs> in the way of this financial gift. Secondly, unity of the church in Ephesians 2, so that he might create in in himself one new man in the place of two. Paul's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and how has that become a reality? And let us also consider that they were hostile. One new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he goes on a couple chapters later to say, in light of all this, indicative imperative, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Lastly, last example, Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
How do you make that a reality when you come to church service? Is this unity in the form of just uh, collecting all our monies together in a unified unit and sending it off? No, because Jews and Gentiles didn't always get along. But now, as a part of their new creation identity, they have predominantly Gentile congregations gathering money for a predominantly Jewish congregation. How about that? (laughs) That they have cast aside social status, worldly categories, for the one that God has put them in instead. So spiritual maturity would dictate that you would also look for opportunities to love or do good or to maintain unity. That we would also take precautions and maybe inconvenience ourselves not to tamper with pure gospel witness. That going through inconveniences in order to have good opportunities to tell others about why you live as if you are in the sight of God. This is the confessional and functional piece of the early church. Okay, last point, our practical love. (laughs) So what is the common denominator between the two points previously? The practical man, the practical church. Will both come as a result of understanding who God is and what he has done. And what's practical? Well, we're talking about just honoring God with your life and that spiritual priorities manifest themselves in mature men being men or this church giving a generous gift. But these are all value judgments, are they not? What is seen as worth your time, worth your money, worth your effort, worth your riches? We are reminded in 1 Timothy 4 to have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So these men are three who have embraced this training because they have their hope set on the living God. So they know that every effort and toil for the sake of the gospel is worth it. And this is of greater value than anything the world can march in front of you. For some, this has yet to be a reality. But maybe don't let the world determine what love is or what treasure is, because God has already done that. And also that this generous contribution is a real statement that the church isn't held together by skin color, by geographical area, social standing, athletic skill, and especially not convenience. What is realized is the overwhelming, generous sign of love that is in Christ. And there's an irony to this, because this love is not practical. The third point really should be inconvenient and practical love. What are you really proving? It's not Christ. It's Christ's love. It's not you. What kind of love is it? It's very impractical. You know, in our, in our current status, where everything is available at the click of a phone, Food, click, right? Amazon has two-day shipping, or even sooner. You don't even have to leave your house to get anything. Everything is conveniently available. But you can't be fooled just because you have a phone. Love cannot be replaced by tech or reduced to what's convenient. Can we just recall for a moment God's love for us? 
How convenient it was to leave heaven, live a human life, take on the physical body, feel hunger, temptation, be betrayed by your closest friends, to feel abandoned by God, to get whooped, get executed as a criminal, while we are all still sinners. Maybe that's not enough. I have another picture. Here's a picture. Uh, here we go. Lower right-hand corner, Jerusalem, right? You guys know where Corinth is? Achaia? Towards the middle? It's 819 miles. There was no car. You could not Venmo the Jerusalem church. What is, conveni what is convenient about sending them? You can write a check. What is convenient about sending this generous gift, nothing. You have to gather the actual cash, give it to these dudes, and they have to walk it over there. Not, maybe it's not all walking. They could take a ferry, right? But if you wanted to go either way, it's a two-hour, ten-minute flight. Or if you want to take a train, it's almost eight hours by train. If you want to walk, you want to guess? Two weeks. The point is, how convenient is that spiritual reality? It's not that convenient. And yet within the walls of our own church, unity, love. <laughs> tell me what you say, tell me what you mean when you say you love someone. What are you actually talking about? Because if, the, if this is true, and the love that we give out should be an appropriate response and reflection of the love we've been given then convenience has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter. But, you know, to make it practical, it starts at your home. So when you say, I love my wife, I love my husband, what kind of love are you talking about? You measuring by feelings or niceness? What preferences have you set aside for them? What convenience are you willing to overlook for them? Are you teaching this to your children? Modeling it for your children? How will your love towards others be an obvious reflection of overwhelming, divine, cosmic love? Maybe for your church members, it's the same thing. What is the witness to the unbelievers God has put in your life? Like if we were to ask your coworkers, what do you know about God's love through this person's life? Well, I can't, I'm at work. Okay, Jesus is still king, is he not, even at work? The world thinks it knows what God's love is. And we have, what if we just focused and made a concerted effort to show them what true love was? By the love we have for one another, maybe? So in this passage where Paul is just commending these men who carry out the ministry of this generous act, we can see spiritual priorities in real physical life. We should be motivated to live out our identities as a new creation as seen in these godly men who are trustworthy and full of earnest care for the church and concern for the glory of God. So men, God has given you a role and a standard. Will you live up to that? Church, he has given us a way to love and be unified. Will we live up to that? And above all, before you do these things, be focused on what God has done for you and who he is. Because that should be your motivation for all things.
in every part of life. Should we pray? Lord, you say in your word, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rains fell, floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So help us to be eager, not just to hear, but to do. May we be vigilant in our doing, in our standing firm, living by the standard you have given us. May we ignore what the world tries to tease us away with and point, that, point out what those lies are. I pray that you would help us make our confessional lives and functional lives be more and more the same as we look to the author and perfecter of our faith for what is now and what lies ahead. May our aim of what is honorable and blameless in your sight in the sight of men be pleasing testimony to the new reality you have made among your people by a most inconvenient act of love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for new life. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.